Oh, hey there. Welcome in to another edition of What Barry's Talking About from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. On this week's program, a homicide and an arson in a church both downtown have residents and business owners thinking crime is getting worse in the core, that more needs to be done to curb it. But is it getting worse or is perception everything? Might be in this case. We have a chat with Police Chief Rich Johnston. An Innisfil man has published his first novel aimed at what he believes is an underserved age group, preteen and teen boys. And it was an exciting week for the Barry Colts. We take a look back as the team gears up for the playoffs. But first, there's concern on many fronts with the province moving to private clinics to provide some health services. Will there be additional charges? Will there be upselling? Is this move really necessary? The newly formed Ontario Health Coalition doesn't think so. Barry 360's Ian McLennan is in studio with co-chair of the Simcoe County chapter, Anissa Karaskal. First off, tell me about the Simcoe County Health Coalition. When was it formed? Or why was it formed? Very recently. Uh, basically, um, there's been uh, quite a, a lot of movement in, in, in healthcare right now, as you probably know. There's an organization that is called the Ontario Health Coalition, and it's basically a network of over 500 uh, grassroots community organizations, and they represent virtually all Ontario. Basically, uh, we formed a single county health coalition because there was quite a lot of interest on improving and preserving our, our public health system here in this area. Just to kind of give you the, the, the big idea, the, the the Simcoe County Health Coalition and the Ontario Health Coalition were non-profit, non-partisan. Uh, it's all a grassroots and community-based, uh, um, and we basically do activism. Uh, and our, our mandate is literally to improve and, and, and protect our public health care system. Well, we're very concerned with with the the current government's efforts to privatize, uh, privatize hospital services like surgical. Are you in the belief that this step of moving certain procedures, cataract, hip and knee, to for-profit clinics is a stepping stone to a wider for-profit system? Yes, we, we, we do. Where do you get that fear factor from? There's data <laughs> to support that. Because of the, the, the way that it has been uh, handled, for example, just to give you an example with surgeries specifically. So I don't know if many people in Ontario understand, but most of the surgical rooms in Ontario right now are working only from like about 8 a.m. in the morning until 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So they have plenty of, of space and room to, to do more surgeries in the in in the hospitals right now, there's no need to actually privatize those services. Why 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 aren't they being utilized? And is it due to staffing shortages? It is definitely an issue with the staffing shortages, and it's an issue of underfunding. Um, there has been a severe underfunding of the hospitals in Ontario. Ontario is the 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 province that is spending less money on their hospitals, and it has cut the most beds in the in the last few years. Um, and it's not an issue with only this government, but it has been a chronic issue from, from several uh, governments in the past. And so what we're actually asking or advocating for is to fix our system, not sell it. Basically, that's, that's, that's what we want. Now, the government um, has made this call. Do you believe the hospitals, the entire hospital association in a broader term, um, backs what the Ford government is doing? Are they players in this too? They are in some capacity. Where do you see them fitting in? Well, most of the, uh, just to kind of give you the idea, we, like, as an organization, I'm a nurse. 
uh, as an I'm a nurse yeah. myself. Uh, in the uh, Ontario Health Coalition, there's plenty of nurses, doctors, uh, uh, medical technicians, um, diagnostic uh, te technicians. We have plenty of people uh, representing the healthcare force in itself. We also have plenty of doctors backing us up. Uh, most of the medical associations have come up to, to uh, um, n not necessarily criticize, but to, to, to request more information from the government in, in regards of these privatization plans. And I will ask people, will say, well, you know, I already get my blood work done at a private lab. I, I get an endoscopy, colonoscopy done at a for-profit clinic. What's, what what's, what's the worry? The worry is that the access to the services is not the same. For example, let's say that they manage to get all the surgeries out of the hospitals right now. Let's say that we move all, all, all the surgeries or the, the surgeries that are the bulk of the surgeries, like hernia surgeries, cataract surgeries, all those surgeries, out of hospitals. What happens is that there's going to be hubs, um, private clinics, but they're only going to be in certain parts of Ontario. So you're going to have to travel farther in order to get your surgery. You're going to have to pay. We have evidence, plenty of evidence, that private clinics that have been doing cataract surgeries have been overcharging, not only upselling, but also charging services that shouldn't be charging, like we have um, uh, a whole uh, uh, file of, of, of people that are bringing us the stories of how much they are actually paying. You have some of those stories on, the, on a website that people can we see do. for themselves? Yeah. Uh, if people want to see those stories, they can go to the website of the Ontario Health Coalition. You just search it on Google, like Ontario Health Coalition. And there's plenty of evidence to see how much people are actually paying already out of pocket uh, in the private clinics. It is happening right now. So in, in the case of, of laboratory uh, testing or, or, or uh, let's say COVID testing, things that are happening in, in, in certain private settings, right now there's no charge uh, for, for the clients, but there is actually. For COVID testing right now, you, like if you want to do a COVID testing, you actually have to pay right now. You, you cannot go to, to, like, as in there are certain settings in which you can do it, but if you wanted to do it, like, like it's faster or, or, or to go out, you can you can pay it. But what, what, what about the people that cannot pay those services? So what we're trying to, to do is to make sure that healthcare in Canada follows the mandate that we all want to, uh, as Canadians, and that we're very proud of healthcare for everybody. That's basically it. Healthcare for all. Again, for more information, check the Simcoe County Health Coalition Facebook group or the Ontario Health Coalition website at ontariohealthcoalition.ca. The Barry Colts got the job done again last week and did it in some creative ways. Our Will Conkin takes a look back with Colts broadcaster and writer Gene Pereira. The Colts started uh, last week with a tough 7-5 loss to Hamilton, but bounced back with the 3-2 uh, win over Mississauga and beat Owen Sound 6-3. The thing I'm interested in, though, is the uh, game winner against Mississauga. Uh, Jacob Frasca hit a loose puck with his skate, got a goal, uh, but there was a lengthy uh, video review on the play. Gene, take us through what happened. Yeah, obviously they had a tough loss to, uh, to Hamilton where they weren't very good in Mississauga. It was a 2-2 game in the third period, and uh, early in the third, um, it was just one of those games where maybe Barry wasn't the strongest up through the first two periods, but uh, a puck uh, got loose in, in the crease area, and uh, 
and Frosca went to kind of poke at it, missed it, and uh, the puck ended up going. He kind of, as he as he strided forward, he actually kicked the puck and it went in the net. And uh, <laughs> there was a lengthy review, and I think uh, the Colts are probably fortunate, maybe that they got that one. I, I was surprised with the, the ruling that it did stand, uh, but uh, I don't now. I don't know. I didn't really see on the replay if it it, it made contact on its way to the net with anybody else. I thought it kind of went directly into the net, but it's just one of those situations that uh, uh, Frasco is going for the puck, and as he strided forth with his left skate, um, you know, he, he, he hit the puck and it slid into the net. So a fortunate call for the Barry Colts there, but uh, as the goal ends up uh, standing. But, uh, you know, the Colts played really well after that. They really limited Mississauga. Uh, you know, to their chances. They did hit two posts, the Steelheads did, but uh, uh, Barry found a way to hang on there. And then uh, Gene as well. Maybe uh, touch on uh, Evan Veerling's uh, play of recent. He's been on a run. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Evan's just, uh, you know, arguably, uh, I mean, his name's right there with uh, anybody who's been the best player in the second half of the season, uh, at the least. Uh, he's just been very dominant. And again, another big five-point night. Uh, five-point g- uh, game against Owen Sound, that 6-3 win on Sunday afternoon, and uh, Evan had a second uh, hat-trick of the season and uh, added two assists. And uh, You know, this is a player that, again, you watch, he's such a skilled playmaker, but, you know, he's starting to do all these other things that make him a complete player, and he understands that, obviously, drafted by the New York Rangers, who decided not to sign him, and as an unsigned free agent now, he's playing for a pro deal, and uh, you know, it's almost like uh, you know someone's got to put a pro deal for this kid to sign. He's just been that good, and uh, you know you could see the effort to to become a complete player. But uh, again, his offensive skills, his ability to you know kind of set up his teammates, uh, he just makes everybody around him uh, that much better. And uh, he was outstanding on Sunday. And again, uh, you know, he's the one that's kind of you know uh, coming up big. Him and Ethan Cardwell. Have played together all season, two over eight forwards. Uh, Cardwell uh, as well in the same situation, uh, albeit a little bit different in that he has been drafted by San Jose. He is uh, uh, belongs to the uh, Sharks organization, and uh, he has until the end of the year to uh, end of the playoffs there to, uh, to to sign a pro deal. So both of them looking for pro contracts. Both of them having big years, and you know they're doing it together and. Uh, um, they've, they've led Barry's offense all year, but especially when you look at this team's turnaround, you know, their, their defensive play has certainly probably been the biggest factor, uh, their ability to keep the, the play without the puck. And uh, Evan Veerling and Cardwell, two guys who are known for their offense, uh, they've been a big part of that because they're veterans and they're kind of leading the way uh, in that play without the puck and, uh, you know, setting good examples for their younger teammates. And then uh, coming up for the Colts, it's a little bit of a lighter week. They only have uh, two home games, uh, London on Thursday and Sudbury for Saturday. Uh, hopefully they don't take this stretch for granted. Rich. Obviously the Thursday night game is always uh, London nights anytime they're in town. And, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the Darth Vader of the Ontario Hockey League, uh, <laughs> you know, always a team that, you know, is, is right up at the top of the standings. And once again, London is one of the best teams in the Ontario Hockey League. And, uh they always get a, a ton of attention there in London, and uh, you know, a really good test for Barry. Obviously, uh, you know, you want to see how you do against the other top teams in the league, and uh, you know, as Marty Williams has said, to 
you know, to, to be the best, you have to beat the best. And, uh, you know, London really sets a good example on Thursday night. I expect that rink to be jammed. And, uh, you know, you can see it in players, too. They know, they know uh, um, you know, the type of game it is and, and the message that they're trying to send. And uh, I think it's a situation where both these teams are going to be pumped up. And, you know, obviously both fighting. Barry trying to catch North Bay uh, for the Central Division title. And London trying to hold off Windsor the top spot in the Western Conference uh, and home ice through that. So, uh, you know, a lot at stake here as we head into this stretch drive. And uh, I think it's just going to be a, a fun game to watch from two very good hockey teams. Well, very much looking forward to the game on Thursday. Always a pleasure, Gene. Till next time. Thanks, Will. What Barry's Talking About is a weekly podcast featuring the best Barry has to offer and more. We've covered a lot of ground since we began in mid-July, learned how artificial intelligence is being used to keep geese from leaving their calling card on waterfront properties, got up close and personal with Danny Wagner, drummer for Greta Van Fleet, and looked at some of the pros and cons of owning an electric vehicle. You can get caught up and make it easy to keep up in the future by subscribing to what Barry's talking about through any podcast distributor. Still to come on what Barry's talking about, an Innisfil author trying to keep male teens reading with his first novel, and Police Chief Johnston says we need to keep recent events downtown in perspective. Now this. Our community rocks. It's a well-known fact blood transfusion saves lives. It's also a well-known fact that the world relies on voluntary unpaid donations to fill the need for blood. The need for blood never ends. Canadian Blood Services in Barrie is calling on you to help save a life. Please consider donating today. Appointments are mandatory and must be booked in advance. Book today at blood.ca through the Give Blood app or by calling 1-888-2-DONATE. Our community rocks on Barrie's Rock Station. Rock 95. This is what Barry's talking about from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. Many of us are brought up being read to at a young age and are encouraged to continue reading on our own as we grow older. But it doesn't always happen that way, especially for young males. Innisfil's Jim Hepburn hoping to change that with his first novel aimed at that group. It's called Hunted by Fire. He flipped through the pages with Barry 360's MJ. It's a YA fantasy, so kind of swords and horses sort of an idea. And it's about a young boy who grows up, and he's, but he's in a world ruled by the dragon gods. And they're all powerful, and they're tyrannical, and they're brutal, and, and he's kind of growing up wondering if there's something wrong with the way that things are. Uh, I think that's, uh, he thinks that maybe something isn't right. But he's surrounded by teachers and townsfolk and, and parents who don't quite think the same as him, that they're used to the old way of thinking, they're used to the way that things are. And so he's got to struggle to hide his beliefs and but still find his place in the world. So for him, he's he's not combat trained like some of his friends are, though he'd love to be. Uh, and he's not charismatic so much either, but he is very uh, smart and resourceful. He's inventive and he's a knack for science and engineering and uh, in creating and inventing. And so coming up in his hometown is a competition held by these dragon gods and their followers every year where they they go and they determine the most promising and the smartest young people from amongst the populace. And he wants to enter, he wants to uh, go in it, to, not only to prove himself, but to also hopefully find that place in the world he's been searching for and show everybody what he's capable of. But unbeknownst to him, some things are about to take place and uh, he'll be pushed out into the world, for lack of a better term. 
And out there it's dangerous and he's got to get gritty and he's got to be resourceful and, and uh, if he's uh, going to survive long enough to make it back to his loved ones. Okay. So is it sort of highlighting, I guess, um, you know, how important it is to not, not, not just to have, you know, the muscles and the brawn and stuff like that, but to have the brains? When I was writing the book, um, you know, right now out there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot for young men. If you walk into a chapters and look at the shelves, it's hard for young men to find books that they really like. And the ones that you do find, that parents might find for their kids too, there's a lot of protagonists who rely on physical strength or, or combat prowess, and, and the whole story seems to be centered on that kind of theme. And there's a reason for that, because it's exciting, and, and young boys uh, and young girls too are attracted to that idea, and it's uh, that conflict that makes stories exciting. But when I was making this book, when I was writing it, I really wanted to focus on a protagonist who had to struggle a bit more uh, to overcome his problems with his mind because when you're out there in the world, um, very few of our problems are physical. There's Most of them are mental. you got to struggle and persuade and be strategic and be diplomatic and, uh, and, uh, and work your way around the world that way to kind of get what you want and to, and, to and to progress. So I thought it would be a great idea to show a protagonist who could do that in a more realistic way. And so what age is uh, your sort of your novel geared towards? You said like young adults were looking like 12, 16 sort of age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, probably somewhere between 13, 17 mm -hmm. is probably the, the, the best range. Is this a series or is it your first of many or, or your first one and done or <laughs> how's that working? Yeah, no, it's a series for sure. It's, I'm writing the second one right now. So I'm more than halfway on that one. And uh, yeah, ho hopefully it'll be a big series for many books to come uh, that somebody can really sink into if they like to read. Why did you start writing? Like what was your, I know you had like some inspiration, but what was sort of like the final clincher that sort of got you there? When I was younger, I was a big reader. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the so most social kid in the world. I, uh, I loved reading anything and I would devour books that were years ahead of me in a way. I know there's lots of young people out there like that now who do that. And I found the same struggle and my parents did too of trying to find books just to keep me going, I guess, in a way. I, I would get some kind of new book like the, like the latest Harry Potter book or the latest Percy Jackson book and I'd beat through it in two days. So there comes to be a point where when you're older, you'd like to find a way to contribute back in some way that you think would be meaningful. And, for, and so for me, I uh, really wanted to help fill that gap and help hopefully make something that uh, a young person could enjoy and, and help feed their, their fire for reading. Yeah. You said a lot of kids are like that now. Like personally, my son is one of those. <laughs> oh, I'll, really? I'll get excited and I'll find a book that I think you'll like and I'll buy it for him or go to the library and I'm like, here. And then a day later, he's like, done. And I'm like, well, oh, okay. So, it usually takes me at least three weeks to get through a novel. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's yeah. great. Um, so when did you release it and uh, how is reception going so far? Yeah, so released it back at the beginning of October. It's been great so far. It's, I've had a lot of positive feedback from anybody who's, uh, who's read it. I've had a lot of friends. Um, and now I'm at the stage where friends of friends have read it and friends of their friends have read it. And they, and they give me feedback from their kids and their sons or daughters who have read it. So it's awesome. And where can people uh, pick it up? They can pick it up online at Amazon. There's also a store here in Barrie called the Barrie Book Inn that stocks it. And it's also stocked right now in Aurelia at Manticore Books. Uh, it's the closest places to get it. Calls are getting loud again for a larger police presence downtown for the city to take steps to make the core safer after a man was killed and a church was torched in recent weeks. Are things getting worse? What more can be done if it is? Our Ian McLennan put those questions to Police Chief Rich Johnston. 
So, Chief, we had a couple of incidents, and they were almost back-to-back with arson, one, of course, affecting a church. Uh, we had a we had a homicide um, so, so close back-to-back that has reignited debate about the downtown and safety and what have you from both residents and some merchants, too. So a, a resident came up to you and said, oh, you know, Chief, the downtown's really not safe. How, how would you respond to that person? It's an excellent question, but it's a little more complex than, uh, and I would ask that uh, that citizen or business owner, do you know it's unsafe or, or do you feel it's unsafe? And I think the answer I would get back, and I, and I wouldn't suggest that I know someone's mind, but they, they feel it's unsafe. And that, that's an important distinction, but it doesn't change what we do know about the downtown. But so I'm crystal clear on this, uh, since 2018, we've seen a decline a decline in the most harmful crime in the downtown. And that is not a trivial amount. Uh, It's upwards of 40%. Now, it is important that that point is that the um, crime harm, and that's the, the weight attached, not all crime is equal. So crime is still occurring in the downtown, yes, like anywhere else in our city. Um... But the amount of crime that happens year over year in that location as we map it out, the, the most harmful types of crime, they've been reduced. And that's an important factor for, as a public safety organization, um, we're not taking, it's not that we did that, but we play a role in, in you know, helping to reduce crime. And um, our presence, and we're aware of that, uh, can have that effect as well as some of our strategies across the city. That's one thing, but people's perception of how safe it is is a completely other. So I'm, uh, I'm cognizant of that. And uh, we are looking, we're working with the BIA in terms of, you know, how can we better respond and how do we, how do we alter, not simply the narrative, but how do we alter people's feelings of safety? And we have some uh, innovative solutions that we're looking at. And uh, maybe some of those solutions you're able to disclose or what are you, what's, um, you know, currently being done in terms of visibility downtown? Because obviously you can't have a cop on every corner 24 hours a day downtown. And that's an interesting point. So uh, the desire to have a police officer on every corner, um, obviously cost ineffective, um, inefficient, uh, but also uh, is it really safer in that um, some people actually feel a little more unsafe if the police are there because generally the police are there when something goes wrong. So it's it's a double-edged sword, uh, certainly. So And I no problem sharing some of the um, what we do know from the, the research that does work. And I know the BIA is... Uh, working hard at it in terms of, um, I think they're exploring uh, improved lighting, which the research is quite strong on in terms of both reducing crime and improving um, perceptions of safety. Uh, from a police perspective, uh, uh, the, the strategy is called problem-oriented policing. Uh, there's also social disorders, what we experience in the downtown, not necessarily high crime rates, but social disorder does occur at an elevated rate in the downtown. That is what we're looking at exploring. And again, the research is quite um, supportive insofar as a community outreach type approach uh, with uh, social disorder seems to have the greatest effect in reducing it, as well as crime. So we're looking at our uh, community engagement uh, outreach officers um, and looking at, you know, is there a way to... uh, perhaps explore that downtown focus a little more with uh, some of them. So it's, you know, to alter that perception of how safe do I feel and to improve that. Because we're, we're, we're cognizant that we want our, our community to feel safe in the downtown. Um, and, and it's certainly a hub of all of our cultural activities in a number of ways, but um, certainly recognizing that uh, it, the city center belongs to everyone. And when you say social disorder, what do you mean by that? So, so social 
social disorder are, are those, they're not crimes, uh, and that could be as broad a spectrum as you can imagine. Uh, that could be uh, uh, noise, um, what some may view as uh, uh, suspicious people or um, unknown individuals causing them to feel unsafe. And that is as vague as it sounds because someone might not be doing anything wrong, but someone doesn't um, they see an individual that causes them to feel unsafe. And, I mean, that there's a whole host of factors to that. Uh, um, we recognize that the downtown certainly has a number of our uh, disadvantaged uh, population, and, and the reality is, and I've said it before, it's, it's not illegal to be homeless. It's not. And, um, but uh, for some people, they feel uncomfortable seeing that, um, or they, there's a, a feelings of um, feeling unsafe, or some of the behaviors that go along with uh, some individuals were um, suffering some mental health so issues. It or, would be fair to say, Chief, not just a police issue here, it's a societal issue, too, oh, that there are things that are uh, gaps maybe in a system that uh, allow this to happen. There are societal gaps, and they absolutely agree with the fact that um, these occur in a, in a society and it, certainly not one organization uh, is A, going to be able to solve it, uh, B, are there any simple answers. These are complex social problems at a societal level and no one agency is equipped um, in any way, shape or form to, um, to resolve them. Now, Chief, you do have, of course, for a long time, uh, an office at the Barry Bus Terminal. In terms of uh, also visibility, so-called walking the beat, um, how often do your officers get to do that? And is it, uh, you know, a nighttime thing, a daytime, or are they on bikes, on foot? What? So uh, we do have our community engagement uh, team, and they're uh, attached to our community safety and well-being team. And so they're out and about across the city in the downtown as well. Uh, You might see them with their bright green shirts. um, And the idea is to be seen. Uh, They're on foot. They can be on bikes. They're in cars. um, And everything you just said, to be purposely visible and engaging with all members of our community, uh, putting them in touch with services for some of the more disadvantaged. Uh, And again, we're well aware of the research about officers on bikes and how humanizing that is. Uh, the community sees us as people versus, you know, just driving by in a car, and I think that's incredibly important. And so we're looking at uh, ways to increase our visibility. Um, and obviously, we live in Barrie. It's a little more challenging to uh, uh, wheel around on a bike in, um, you know, uh, a foot deep of snow, but certainly as the, the weather changes, you'll, you'll see more uh, officers on bikes uh, as the climate dictates. And that's our program for this week. Thanks to Ian, MJ, and Will for their input, to Matt Ladder for his technical wizardry, and to you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to what Barry's talking about, rate it, review it. You can also keep up with what Barry's talking about on Facebook and Twitter at Barry360 and on our website, barry360.com. I'm Dan Blakely. Hope you'll join us again next week.